Hi, everyone. I'm Brett Bradigan, editor of Ojai Quarterly and Ojai Monthly Magazines. Given the duration of this pandemic, 11 months and counting, jeez, there is no one among us who has not been affected and usually affected for the worse. I would argue that the worst and most enduring negative impacts have been borne by our school-aged children. Who better to give us insight into this situation than Jim Bailey, who has been teaching in the Ojai Valley, both public and private schools, for more than 20 years. Jim is the director of Rock Tree Sky, a school which works with local public school students as well as homeschooled students to enrich their learning with self-directed experimental teaching. It was great fun catching up with Jim, who is not only a great teacher, but a great friend. That's part of why I do this podcast, to reach out to the very many interesting people I know to get their take on what's going on. And that Jim's wise and informed views enriched me, and I hope you. Hey, Jim. Hey, Brett. How's it going? Um, surprisingly, it's it's going it's going well. It's going okay. Yeah, we're ten months into this pandemic, and you've been, you know, pushed a little bit. I'm sure having to think on your feet and respond to this crisis. And uh, I just wonder, what's it look like? <laughs> um. You know, it's made a really fun job uh, a lot more challenging. So it looks like a lot yeah. more, um, there's more technical pieces uh, and more, you know, more agencies to hold in our awareness than, than maybe ever before. And at the same time, to not lose sight of the reason we're doing this work in the beginning, which is to, um, you know, create a space for kids to, develop and, and grow into who they're going to be, you know, with the guidance of, you know, some positive modeling, good mentorship and, you know, fun activities, et cetera. But, um, you know, for, for a program like, like ours, which is a lot more informal, uh, we've been able to keep things outside and, and for the most part, accepting some, you know, extremely windy days. And, uh, and the kids have been able to, to be together. So, you know, I'm just thankful for that, but yeah, I'd be well, lying. Yeah, go yeah, ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, be... um, sorry, uh, there's a bit of latency in the signal here, so I'll just back okay. off whenever we get to those points. But uh, Rock Tree Sky, what's your um, enrollment? Hello. I lost you, Brett. What's uh, our what? Uh, what's your enrollment there? At oh, what's our enrollment? Our enrollment is is right about 140 learners. You know, we tend to call the students learners. Um, about 140 a total, uh, which means that on any given day, it'd be 70, you know, 70 students at our campus. Wow, that is a lot of moving pieces. Are all? Uh, was it a challenge getting the kids up to- technologically making sure they all had good online uh, capability you know there were a couple of families who through the support of Ojai Unified and our partnership with them with the school district uh, were able to get some laptop computers to be able to uh, you know to zoom in um, both with us 
and uh, the Zoom offerings we were doing, and then also with their their OHA Unified Independent Study Teacher. So they really helped on that. And and we we did have a few students. I, I'd say it was it was under two handfuls that you know we we loaned out a couple of our personal Chromebooks from our program, and then OUSD and kind of got us across the finish line. Not as much as other communities, as you might imagine. Most of the communities here, uh, most of the the families here you know, did have access to, to getting their kids online. Yeah. And what uh, changes did you make in the curriculum to adjust? Yeah. I mean, it's really, you know, that was a huge thing because, you know, we follow a real kind of John Dewey-esque, uh, you know, learn by doing, right? <laughs> like yeah. hands-on, minds-on kind of process. And uh, it's, it's also very much uh, interactive and in, in, in connecting with the learner. So, you know, I, what we did was, um, <laughs> you know, we tried to, to reimagine that, you know, almost as if you were doing uh, like a YouTuber, right? As if we were, so I watched a couple of YouTubers and I said, all right, what are they doing? Right. And so we got some, um, you know, some modified uh, uh, kind of um, camera stands, if you will, to attach the phone to, uh, with the, you know, the link or we used, uh, kind of, we have some high def, um, little webcam type things and just, you know, mounted them so that we could turn them and, you know, they could see like different activities that I was offering, you know, our art teacher, Kim Smith, uh, she does art and a lot of cooking You know, she, she got this great kind of imagine a swing arm lamp, if you will. And it's got a, a giant hair clip on the end that holds her phone. Wow. And she just takes that thing everywhere and clamps it and clamps it right above what she's cooking. And, you know, and lets the kids know ahead of time what the recipe is going to be, you know, or we'd let them know what the science experiment was going to be. Hey, bring cardboard, bring tape. And then, you know, we just show up and, and we see who shows up and uh, we go from there. Yeah. Wow. That's, uh, I'm, I'm wondering what, uh, you know, the, how you grade kids or mark their progress. I mean, grade's probably a hard word, but how do you mark their progress or measure it? Yep. Yep. So, so with what we do, that's, that's less of an issue. Most of, you know, our accounting of a student's progress in their time with us is done informally through a Google doc that we keep for each student where we, you know, we'll take a picture of something cool that we're doing. Maybe, uh, document, um, you know, some, some dialogue we might've had or some goals that the kids had, but, you know, with, with our relationship, us being an informal learning environment and kind of being a, a vendor with the district, right. Being in partnership with them, we don't, you know, we don't pursue, you know, we don't give a grade. So, you know, since I've moved over into doing rock tree sky, part of our philosophy in fact is to to reimagine an education environment where we maybe take away that, that ever evaluative gaze, right. That's kind of kids, you know, there's a game, right. When you're a classroom teacher, there's that, that gaze is, is always there. And the good teachers, you know, kind of take that feeling away so that the learner doesn't really feel that piece of the relationship, but you know, it's there, right. Yeah. Teaching to the test. That's always, Right. Teaching to the test or, I mean, and sometimes, you know, maybe, maybe another teacher might find a way to, by raising that bar high to get some kids to really jump to that carrot, 
you know, that's another thing that some teachers do. But this rock tree sky is really an experiment in um, uh, intrinsic, you know, evaluation of what's meaningful for that kid to learn and do at that stage of their life. And it kind of, we take away with what we're offering, uh, you know, our have tos or thou shalt. And we do what we're into. We ask what they're into and then see if they want to meet in the middle, you know? So you got to be thinking on your feet all the time, huh? That is a true fact, sir. You know, it's, you know, some people might say, oh, well, you don't, you don't have to, you know, have countless lesson plans and, and, uh, you know, you don't have to get them through A, B, C, D, E, F, G. But, you know, I tell you, I don't know that my mind's ever been so active with, with really paying attention to what's going on with the kids or what, what I'm into and then, you know, kind of genuinely trying to bring that. And that, that takes its own kind of work and it's not nothing. It is not nothing. It's, it's so important. <laughs> And but given those kids that in-person experience, I know uh, what little I do know about Rock Tree Sky. You do a, a lot of outdoor classrooms and teaching, and that's hence the the name Rock Tree Sky. And how are you like? Are you back out there again, socially distanced? And yeah, yeah. So we, um, you know, we were able to start bringing kids on campus uh, to a limited degree in September. And then, you know, as things eased up a little bit, some account, some uh, allowances were made in, in uh, kind of late October, early November, we were able to bring, you know, kids on for more hours and, you know, we're limited. They have to be in, in these small uh, traceable cohorts, if you will, you know, groups of uh, including the teacher under 16. And so they're on campus, they wear masks and, uh, you know, we do stuff outside. Like today, uh, we were sitting around a couple of big picnic tables and, you know, my offering my on my menu was uh, kind of an edible chemistry science activity. You know, we worked with some sodium alginate and uh, some, you know, acetic acid and, uh, you know, I think the baking soda was involved. And, and, you know, we kind of made some gummies and made some little, oh. you know, like fizzy kind of drinks and, um but we, you know, we're able to do hands-on stuff, but, you know, we, we're doing it outside. We're trying to keep our space. And, uh, you know, to me, it really feels like because we're able to do it outside and, and we're one of many schools, by the way, there's been a whole push for schools to reimagine their outdoor learning spaces and create outdoor classrooms. Yeah. So you are a um, bit ahead of the curve on that, I imagine. Totally, totally. We, you know, one, you know, it, it's kind of in our DNA, you know, r- named Rock Tree Sky, of course. Um, and, uh, and this campus, you know, us being up at summit campus, you know, it's got, it's a great outdoor space. And, uh, you know, if you go on the right spots on campus, you got a million dollar view of the Topa Topas. Let me tell you. Yeah. Yeah, That's gotta be, when you talk immersive experience, having a magnificent view like that must, I don't know. Absolutely. I think for me, and as I remember school, which I hated, by the way, but I never had a teacher like you. So that's probably a big part of it that I would just be distracted nice. all day long, staring out the window. Yeah. You get a bit of that. You got those kids. Uh, we don't have, it. <laughs> you know, well, that's even nice thing. yeah, it, um, you know, cause if, if they don't want to do what I'm doing, 
um, you know, they might, they might say, Hey, you know, I think I've, I've done enough of this. And, you know, that, that becomes part of the conversation too. You know, maybe, uh, the next time I'm doing that science activity, if they bailed out in the middle of the last one, I'm, I might say, you know, Hey, are you going to do this one all the way through? But, uh, yeah, we don't, it's, it's full engagement, which is another part of the experiment up here. You know, it's, it's what, what happens if, um, instead of, uh, kind of standard, knowledge acquisition is replaced with the idea of engagement and it doesn't matter what it is that you're learning or engaged in, you know, within the realm of what's socially and socially acceptable in our society. Right. uh, Yeah. Yeah. And useful, et cetera. Yeah. Right. But what happens if, if we, if engagement is the norm. So instead of kind of this passive receptivity of doing something that, I'm not necessarily curious about, I instead am freed up to, you know, do what I'm really interested in and then stay engaged in it. And, you know, my hope and my, my self-knowledge is when I'm engaged in something, you know, the learning is deeper, the memory of it, the satisfaction of it, you know, I just feel more fully alive and, and happier. So, you know, we really are trying to, um, to measure, if I'm going to try and measure anything up here, to be honest, trying to measure engagement and you know we're actually working with an organization in minnesota called the hope survey they're working with about 130 schools across the country to try and measure you know ostensibly hope but also as part of that you know engagement how a student feels about working towards their goals how they're feeling about their educational um you know their 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 educational life and so uh, that's a survey that we'll be offering the kids this year. We got all dialed in on that. I'm, I'm pretty excited to see what happens. Yeah, or just being part of a large cohort like that, and maybe there's some mm-hmm. best practices and things you can learn. Yeah. Now, yep. uh, one of the, it's uh, can you describe the relationship with the school district? Because I'm I'm hazy on that. Like, how how does that work? Yeah. Um, it's, are, well, it are works. you like a vendor? You mentioned vendor before. What? Right. You know, there's, it's, (laughs) yes. So, you know, on a, on a legal basis, you know, we are like any vendor that the school district might work for, um, or work with rather like, you know, kids are offered edgenuity, which would be, you know, an online learning platform or the school district buys textbooks to use in their classroom. And they might, you know, the textbook has access to some online components and the school district in this instance, um, pays for a certain amount of days for their kids to access our program and, you know, focusing, you know, ideally on enrichment and socialization opportunities for homeschool families. But how we got to that point, you know, is a little interesting and I think worth teasing out. And that is that um, we were, we started Brett with like 20 kids and these were all. And that was like what, of, four or five years ago. Five years ago, these were all kind of diehard homeschool families or families that wanted some families that were leaving private school environments and wanting to homeschool. And we started with them in a small space uh, adjacent to Stagecoach Market up here and, and using the um, National Forest. We have a permit with the ranger station. Um, but so, and then it, and then it grew. And what we found was that there, there were these entities, these homeschool charter school entities that had, you know, smartly realized that they could um, create a charter school 
and then assign a teacher to a homeschool family, give them support, right? You support those kids, bring them a little bit back in the fold. Families that had left, you know, the public sphere, kind of bring them back in. They would obviously get some state funding and ABA for them. And then they would give these families back because they didn't have to have a brick or mortar school environment. They would give these families back $2,500 a year and say, hey, because we're not housing you, we're not having a janitorial staff, et cetera, use this money on some educational enrichment stuff for your kids, right? And they would manage that relationship. And so primarily a majority of our families would come from these, these homeschool charter school environments and it allowed them to offset the fees at Rock Tree Sky, right? So which was great because then, you know, I don't just have families that can afford it out of pocket because, you know, some really great families that, you know, can do that, but it doesn't feel good. It lacks the diversity of kids and you don't feel like some kids who might really benefit from a program like this, you know, if they don't have access because their family can't afford it, you know, that doesn't feel good. My mom was a public school secretary, right? I started my career as a public school teacher and that's, I fully believe in that. So, you know, we were always, kind of on, you know, so that we were doing it that way. But, you know, here, right, right in my own, in our own town, Ojai Unified continued to, you know, instill this, suffer from declining enrollment, which is a devastating prospect for a school district. I mean, if you look into, there's always a year Mm -hmm. behind and you're, Mm -hmm. and it's it's really rough. Yep. The, The funding model with declining enrollment districts is broken because it just, the math does not add up. So, um, so here, you know, Ohio Unified has declining enrollment and, you know, I had said to Andy and I said to Tiffany, when she came on, I said, you know, at some point, uh, I'd love for you guys to create Andy Cantwell. Yes. Yeah. Andy Cantwell, superintendent, who's great. And Dr. Tiffany Morris, um, who's, who's a teacher superintendent. You know, she was a classroom teacher for many years herself. She gets it. She knows kids. Um, so, you know, I'd said, hey, it'd be great to create a homeschool program with you guys, you know, with OUSD. And Tiffany finally approached us in uh, year before last or last year, I think summer before last and said, what about us starting an independent study program with you guys? So we started with a, like a sixth grade through 12th grade program. And that, that had some success. And then um, I said, that's great. I said, but if, we, if you guys create a homeschool program, I've got all these families. I think, Brett, we were up to 100 families by then. Oh, and, wow, and they're working with these charter school entities. And, you know, it's, it's a great idea. But some of these entities are, you know, I don't know where they're located down in San Diego. And, you know, I don't know. The superintendent's making $340,000 of the, the charter school district. And I, I don't know. It, it, you know, I said, if you, I'd much rather the money be here in Ohio. And so, you know, Tiffany did her homework and she created a a homeschool program with Cheryl Knox and with, you know, talking with us. And we, we brought 80 students over to their door that were not part of the district before that were either from out of district or from private schools or families that had just been homeschooling. And so it's, it's totally win-win. It's, 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 it's great because I think for the first time last year, we, we didn't have declining enrollment when those families came on board. So that was kind of a unique change. And, um, and the, our families get support from teachers who are local. And now 
those teachers are offering study hall sessions on site for our learners that are, you know, wanting families that are wanting to come for the uniqueness of what Rock Tree Sky offers, the informal, non-evaluative piece, just learning for learning's sake. Um, and then they get on top of it, this teacher in that to be in relationship to focus on those kind of power standards. You know, what are these real key ideas and supporting the homeschool families? And I, it's great. I, you know, I keep telling Tiffany, when, when can, when can we share this with other districts? And, you know, she's, she's a wise, uh, superintendent. She says, let's, let's really make this work. Give it another year or two. Let's really prove out this concept. And, and uh, yeah, it could be something that would benefit other districts, uh, that are experiencing declining enrollment and not really meeting the needs of, um, these families who, who are frankly, Brett, they're wanting to step away from the standard model classroom. You know, the, I imagine there's, there's families that that's not working for anymore. Yeah, I imagine that's a growing number. It just seems like the social infrastructure in our country is, is disintegrating yeah. right before yep. our eyes. So I feel like you're doing the hard work of backfilling that uh, infrastructure because <laughs> in the social component of homeschooling, very difficult and, and uh, you know, hard yeah. for these parents to provide that for their, their children. Yes. Yeah. And, and sometimes, you know, sometimes it may just be, you know, a lack of, you know, of the resources, the background, or what do I, how do I do this? And sometimes it can really, you know, it can muddy that relationship. You know, some, some kids will do just fine doing homeschool and schooling type things with their parents. Other kids will just fight tooth and nail and say, wait, you're my parent. I'm not going to treat you like my teacher. So in a situation like that, you know, it's, it can be tough. There are even some, especially when some folks, 13, 14 years old. <laughs> yeah, especially, especially. Yeah. And there are some who even advise, you know, it's better if the parent, is, you know, especially as the kid's age, like you say, you know, if you can find some other adults, uh, mentors that will then take on that role to, so that you as the parent can kind of keep that parent role a little cleaner yeah. in that regard. For, for some kids. On them. Right, right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, so I'm wondering, I, I had done a podcast earlier with Tiffany, and she said something that struck me as, in, as uh, intriguing, that for some of these younger kids, this 10 months or whatever that we've been in a pandemic, that's a huge portion of their lives. I mean, it's, mm. it's you know, it's a big, a big stretch. And mm -hmm. for their relative you know, experience, like, what does that, how, how, you know, what does that, you see the, these kids struggling to, you know, get their minds around all this? Right. Right. Um, yeah, those younger kids, you're right. That, that, that is a bigger piece of their, their timeline. Um, you know, yeah, we've, we're, we, I've seen, you know, some kids who've been out for a while or, come back in or families who found us recently who've maybe been been out for a while um you know there's some there's some hesitancy there's a little um you know and maybe it's anxiety uh is the right word you know to come back into that social setting with other other kids um at you know outside of their maybe home circle you know in a new environment like like rts or, or any school um you know, so that's, you're seeing that, you know, obviously, uh, if you want to look, you'll see, you know, there's, 
multiple articles on, you know, the, the, the emotional and kind of psychological toll this is having on even teens, you know, and older kids, you know, of course we're talking about the younger ones in this moment, but, um, you know, I, I think my, my light, my ray of light that I, I look towards in this is that, um, you know, kids are resilient and, um, you know, a lot of different, in a lot of different ways. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure about the psychological ways, but, you know, with, with, um, you know, content matter, a lot can be made up, uh, you know, so long as there, there probably hasn't been, you know, say, say damage done in particular, you know, kids can make up for lost time in terms of concepts and content. And, and I would hope as a parent, um, that I would, that there would be some of that same thing in the social sphere as well. But, but I'm not a psychiatrist, psychologist. Yeah. I, I guess we're going to learn over the next you know, few, right. few years, what kind of long-term effects this pandemic is going to have on, on these children. I'm optimistic that, you know, especially the younger ones, their, their brains yeah. are, are so, you know, plastic that they're, they'll come out the other side and, and yeah. they'll, they'll have some stories to tell stories right. to tell about the <laughs> pandemic in 2020. I've got, um, you know, I've talked about this on other episodes, but I keep coming back to it because it fascinates me is that, you know, after the black plague came the Renaissance and there were a lot of factors mm. behind that, there was, um, you know, they lost a third of the people, a half in some places. So all of a sudden, skilled labor became even more valuable. Wages mm-hmm. went up and it created an upward, upward uh, affluence. And then, you know, the patrons, the arts, but also um, discoveries that were taking place, like with the Mongol invasion, as horrible as that was, it did open up the Silk Road and create a lot of trade. And then after the pandemic of 1918 came the Roaring Twenties, F. Scott Fitzgerald in the Jazz Age, and all the mm. you know the artistic uh, enthusiasm that comes out of these, mm. out of these situations. And I imagine that it won't be any different for education. That it might be a great age for you know, like what you're doing can can get yeah. uh, a little more uh, you know uh, acceleration. That's- Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a great observation. I really appreciate you bringing um, those historical uh, new kind of uh, touch points in. Um, you know, because I'm not sure that 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 I knew that. And but what I do know is that kind of pre-pandemic, uh, in the 20 years that I've been teaching. This this time, even pre-pandemic, there was a lot. There was a lot going on. There was, um, you know, there were some new organizations that that kind of just came into being right around the same time we were kicking off Rock Tree Sky. You know, there was a there was a lot of movement happening. You know, I don't know if some of your listeners may have seen uh, the documentary uh, "Most Likely to Succeed" about High Tech High in San Diego, which is all about um, student centered learning. Oh, uh, I haven't seen that, but I'll pop it up in the notes and, and I'll check. Yeah, it great, great doc. Um, uh, another organization uh, had just started working. I think you know a year before we started, and that's um, uh, Education Reimagined, and they came out of a DC think tank about how do we improve education and 
make some changes and they, you know, they work on many fronts with like lab programs, uh, public will, and they actually do some lobbying. Um, so they've got people working in DC. Um, so all this stuff was kind of happening. And, you know, at first, you know, we, we were kind of, you know, we knew we were connected to a history of schools like Summerhill, um, uh, and Sudbury Valley school. Yeah. Yeah. We're cousins, cousins of the Montessori model. Um, and, but then, and so, so all that was happening and it felt very much like, uh, you know, at first I thought, oh, we, you know, we started our own thing here. And then, you know, you kind of say, oh, wait a second, maybe we're feeling the zeitgeist, you know, what's going on in the moment here. Um, but then as you say, here comes the pandemic, right? And education, you know, the, the standard model of education, I mean, that is, that's a big shift to turn around. You need a lot of tugboats on oh, that man, thing, right? I'm that is we're still in the factory model of schooling. Well, um, better you say it than me. I mean, I'm, you know, I don't need to make any enemies, but absolutely. Absolutely. If you look at the history, we still are in the factory model. I mean, why can't a kid who's curious about something in my science class, curious, you know, or a kid who's in my, my fourth grade class and curious about something that I'm not so great at, but man, that teacher two doors down is a champ at that thing. Why can't I send that kid over there or at the high school level? You know, if I've got a kid who wants to be in the science lab all day and they don't want to analyze a poem right now, why can't I send them over there? Any, anyways, I'm digressing. So, so, so here, here's the pandemic, right? Pandemic completely kind of shuts down the standard kind of model, takes the test away, Brett. They did not give a test last year for the standardized testing. They're not going to give a standardized test this year. I mean, and once you're kind of free of the big three textbook companies that produce all the standardized tests, make all the millions of dollars, once you're kind of free of that for a few years and you can start focusing a little bit more on what are the kids interested? What is my skill set? Uh, you know, how can I teach these standards in a way that are meaningful? And, and now we can reevaluate that. I think the challenge is going to be to not knee jerk and get pushed right back into what it was and to instead, as you say, kind of accelerate, use this opportunity to accelerate, bring some artistic enthusiasm to education and, you know, allow some of these teachers who are just kind of languishing and frustrated. I mean, I was one of them. Yeah, I walked away, you know, for the longest time I felt the only way to change a system was to create a parallel system, right? Create a different economy, right? Create a, another way of doing it. But there's, um, you know, there, there's a lot of teachers ready to, to use the lever of this moment and organizations ready to use the lever of this moment to try and bring things back to a more, um, sane learner centered, uh, you know, socially, emotionally appropriate uh, perspective and around learning. In economics, they would call that demand side. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, for me, it's definitely demand side because those families, you know, can choose to come here or not, you know. Um, well, good. And I've all getting out there and doing your own thing. I know. I've known you. We've known each other for quite a long time. And I've seen your, fact. your progress through the through. The you, you were there, Brett. You were there my first year. I think uh, we were doing something with a mousetrap car and somebody That's said, right, reach out to the paper, call them up. And 
you came down, took some pictures. We ran the mousetraps in the hallway. I got out all on. I got prone trying to get a good angle for the photos. That's right. That's right. You know, a few <laughs> astronomy nights uh, over the course of time, and um, you know, so yeah, it it has been. It's been a a real um, evolution. And you know, to be honest, though, I I, I love my time teaching in the classroom, and you know. I would still go back and do it again, uh, but I really am pleased to be having the experience I'm having because, you know, man, I would, I would do it differently. You know, I, it's, I would do a lot more of, of kind of a, you know, a student centered Friday or, or like a, a self-directed Friday kind of thing or a, a different, you know, homework you assign yourself. I started doing that at Oak Grove because one of my colleagues, uh, Krista Swanner, an amazing uh, local teacher uh, at Oak Grove, um, she would do this great thing, you know, assign yourself the homework tonight. Whatever you want, try and spend some time on it, bring something in, tell us about it, show us. Yeah, what would that look Kids like? Kids would, they would, it would blow away the other homework, Brett. You know, and especially you get kids who would just do the bare minimum. Suddenly, you know, they're pulling out all the stops. Hey, I, I wrote this song, uh, you know, to uh, about this thing that we're learning or you know, they'd create this big poster about horses that they're really into and list, you know, listing all the different types of horses and, you know, doing research. And that's the thing. That's the, you know, you're, you're learning the skill of doing the research. You're learning this, you know, you're practicing the skill of, of self-directing your learning process, which is, you know, I think you should start with kids a lot sooner, not, Hey, by the way, learn what we want you to learn all along. And now you're 18. Hey, we hope to keep learning. Um, but we're not going to tell you what to learn anymore. And suddenly the kids thinking, well, gosh, I've never really had to be responsible for figuring out what I'm supposed to learn. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like why, you know, and they, they all do it fabulous, fabulously. Is, yeah. Uh, with the their own curiosity. Said, what do you say? What Alice Cooper said? School is out forever. So, um, yeah. So any, anyways, it's been an evolution and, um, and I think there's room to bring this in the classroom. Um, you know, what you see sometimes as a result of not giving kids a little more choice and being so driven by the standards and the test is that when you do give kids some freedom, uh, it'll break your heart to see that some of the kids don't even know what to do. Like you might tell kids, Hey, go out and learn about something you want to learn about. And I actually had this happen to me where uh, a young lady in my sixth grade class came up to me and said, well, well, Jim, can you tell me, what do you think I should want to learn about? And it, it, it stopped me in my tracks. And I, and I, at the time, I don't know that I fully understood like exactly where that was coming from or, or, or why this was happening. You know, I, I wondered if it was more this, you know, this individual, but, as I look back on it, why wouldn't she say that if every teacher has always kind of rewarded or punished and, and as well told them what to learn? It's like some of these kids don't even know what they, they're afraid to be interested in what they're really interested in because it might not please the teacher. Oh, wow. That is sad. Yeah. But how do you teach initiative? What are the, I mean, What's that? How do you teach initiative? How do you? teach these kids to well yeah i think initiative is is we're born with it and um you know i don't think 
I mean, you can, you can, I mean, you know, that you can be a coach, right? You can be, you know, like that John Wooden, be a great coach. Um, I, I think modeling, you model that behavior yourself. But I think kids have initiative, you know, there's no kid out there who doesn't learn to walk. But, you know, I, I haven't seen any walking teachers knocking on the doors of, you know, new parents. There's no kids out there who don't learn to talk. And certainly there's no talking teachers. There's just people around them talking. So, you know, evolutionary, evolutionarily, I would say that we are all born with initiative, but maybe not initiative to learn what, what the adults think kids should learn when they think they should learn it. You know, I think there's some third graders who might not have the initiative to learn about Benjamin uh, Franklin or Abraham Lincoln, if that's, you know, what they're supposed to be learning about in that, that moment in, in social studies, but man, maybe they really want to learn about dinosaurs because that's what they're turned on to. I think the initiative's there, but we co-opt, we're trying to co-opt that initiative to learn about the things that are valuable to us, that we have deemed are valuable. And I would, you know, I would question that whole mindset and ask you to examine that and say, well, what if a what if a kid who's eight years old just learned about what they wanted to learn about, and we supported them in it, yeah, and we and caught we up on some of this other stuff later? Or got, gave them a broader context so that they did know about Ben Franklin, and maybe by making a battery, uh, you know, or something related to what? You, know, I, 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 you broke up for a second there, Brett. Oh, I was gonna like say, give them a battery. Yeah, like they they don't have to necessarily just regurgitate a bunch of textbook information about historical figures like Ben Franklin. Maybe they can learn about him just by recreating some of his early experiments in electricity, for example. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And for some kids, that'll be the way that they'll want to do it. And other kids might want to read the book. And so, so the, to me, the ideal setting is, is the environment, right? The, the space. I think, you know, for me, part of the experiment with Rock Tree Sky too is to reimagine the educational environment and that, you know, based on this assumption, if you have a rich environment with the wires and the batteries and the magnets and those things available for the opportunity when that comes up or to strew, as we say, or other people uh, might use the word curate, you know, we would maybe prefer to use the word strew. You strew some interesting things around and set it on the table and then kind of, you know, see who gravitates, Right. Uh, but also having those books or having those resources and being agile and able to get to that place. To me, you know, when we look at studies of kids who do well with reading, um, uh, kids who do well in school, uh, unfortunately, a lot of times, um, you know, minus, minus maybe that, that good classroom situation, um, you know, a lot of times it's how rich is their, their environment in the world around them? Are their parents creating a rich environment? Are the parents involved in literacy? We can't dump it on you know, the education system. No, no. And so education comes in and saves the day for some of these kids when those things aren't there for those families, right? When those kids aren't experiencing those things at home, then you have those teachers who are having to provide those really um, focused reading lessons. But you know, I've got a young lady whose parent really was focused on the unschooling model. Uh, she tried for a moment, maybe about a month, to do some reading instruction when the daughter was maybe six because she wasn't reading yet. Daughter pushed back. She said, I don't like it when you do that, mom, because it's like you're not reading the story anymore. 
Mom continued to just read stories at bed and do that kind of reading. At the age of 10, nine or 10, like I think fourth grade, that fourth grade transition year between third and fourth grade, the girl just started reading all the time, like started reading road signs, started reading stuff, and then started reading books. Did not do a lick of focused instruction except for trying to do it a few times when she was reading to her at night in bed. And the kid read. Nobody gave that kid reading instruction. But literacy was around. It was available. I mean, these things, you know, the, 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 you know, the understanding of how these, these things are developed by kids, it's a little more, um, there's a little more there than, uh, the educational, um, uh, glitterati want to admit perhaps at the time, you know, there's, there's more going on. Carol Black is a great, um, she's got a great long form essay. She was the, the writer producer, of the wonder years, you know, <laughs> a show that featured a lot, a lot on education, right? So much, so many good scenes at school, uh, Carol black at carolblack.org. She's got a wonderful long form essay on reading and how kids learn to read in the various ways, uh, called a thousand rivers. And that, that is a wonderful piece of reading. Yeah. A thousand rivers. Um, so, you know, I think the nice thing about doing this, this, program is I've learned a lot. I've probably learned more in the last five years of doing RTS about education than I learned in the whole of my college career of of studying, you know, for my credential, you know, as well as my regular public school career, because I, I, well, I don't know why. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I'm I'm curious, Jim, what's like a average day look for you, you know, right now during, during Mm -hmm. this pandemic and how, how do you sure. walk us through it? Sure. Yeah, average day at, at RTS, we've been able to keep some things the same. Some things have fallen away. You know, we used to do these all-school kind of group, you know, your morning meetings a couple times a week and, and then end the day with an all-school kind of group activity, like a game or something kind of fun just to, to have that community piece. And, and we've had to step away from that because we have these isolated pod cohorts. Um, uh, so that's that's been hard to let go of. So an average day, uh, kids arrive on campus, they go to a zone. We've got these six different zones outside that we've created on the campus. Uh, they go to meet their adult mentor, their teacher, air quotes, um, at that spot. They, they do a little kind of circle up, you know, and what we share with them is we share what's on the menu for the day, what we brought, you know, on the menu. Hey, this is what I'm offering. Um, then we kind of go around the circle and, uh, and find out, you know, what, what the kids' plans are. You know, That's, what are their, we call them pod, there. And each pod. Each pod is doing this separately. So every pod has a teacher. There's six, six teachers, six mentors, and there's, you know, pods of anywhere from, you know, 10 to 12, 14 kids. Uh, if, if everybody's in attendance, uh, you know, that varies at times, obviously. Um, and so they hear what's going on. They share their intention. You know, we did find early on that it's good to have some structure to a informal and kind of more free environment. And that structure is in the morning to, to set a goal, right? Set your intention for the day. Um, we check in on what their needs are. Hey, are you going to need anything for that? And, and then after that, um, they're free to go about learning about whatever they want. Uh, doing whatever activity they want to be doing or joining so, our activity. Fun. As a pod, yeah. So they can't mix anymore. You know, the the wonderful thing beforehand 
is, you know, I could have a seven-year-old who's uh, really into art and, you know, they could be sitting over there with a 10 or a 12-year-old who's really into art working on, say, Miss Kim is teaching a thing on how to paint eyes or whatever. She's doing a, uh, you know, copy of a Chagall thing or something. And they could, you know, both be doing that together, which is, I think, really powerful because, you know, I think it's artificial that we put all the 10-year-olds together and we put all the nine-year-olds together and we put all the seven-year-olds together. I, I don't, you know, some of my greatest mentors have been people who are a lot younger and a lot older, you know, um, and we learn from, those kids can then learn from each other more and we see a lot of that. Uh, so, so right now though, they stay in that pod and that pod is kind of an age band. We have a kind of a, we have a couple groups that are five through seven year olds, some groups that are eight through 11 year olds, and then kind of, uh, you know, 13, 13 and up, if you will. And, uh, and then they go about their day. We all stop and break for lunch at 12. Everybody's asked to kind of sit, find a place to relax, eat some lunch in their pod group. And then, um, and then we go about the rest of our day till three, we rotate some zones, right? So the kids can go to some different zones through the day. And then at the end of the day, what started with intention, we end with uh, reflection. So how'd it go? Did you get that thing done? Or what'd you enjoy the most about that? Or share something you learned today or share what your plan is for tomorrow. So that, that'd be a day for us. Oh, and then, awesome. and then I'll, I guess I'll flesh that out and say like, what are some of the things that they might do there? in the art zone, there'd be some art supplies out and maybe a model of something that the art teacher had made. Um, and then they could do that. Uh, science, I try and find some, you know, different fun, you know, weird, wacky activities for them to do. Um, and then, you know, that's something they could do in that zone. Uh, you know, we have some kids that are really into this card game called magic. I like to, you know, that's gathering magic, the gathering. They say it's more complicated than chess, Brett. Yeah. So, you know, I, know. Have, I have a friend of mine who's deeply into that and it's, uh, yeah, it's like, uh, <laughs> so that's a thing. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons. It's like, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you have a group of kids that might do that. We've got our shop teacher who, you know, puts out something that he's created and the tools to do it and gives a little bit of guidance and, you know, the kids can do that. So it, it might be anything musical instruments, you know, the, the idea is to have whatever, they might want to do. And if we don't, then I want to get it. Yeah. Right. And that's what I also love about this is if there's something I think is, is really cool that kids are going to be into, I'll just go buy it. I love it. I love being, having that freedom with the budget. Oh, sure. You know? Well, you're your own man now. Like there's a big difference between being an employee and being yeah. an entrepreneur. Yeah. Every teacher, every mentor here starts out the year with $2,000 for their budget. You know, that's built into the year, you know, for six teachers. What do you want? And then if, if it goes beyond that, then we'll take a look at it and say, you know, well, do you need this other thing? Right. So, I mean, that's, it's really about what do we need to, to really keep the fire lit, you know? So, um, yeah, I won't keep you much longer, but I do want people to know about you personally. I've, I've, like I say, I've known you for a couple of decades now. And uh, you grew up in Minnesota, is that right? Oh, somewhere. I don't know. I don't. I don't remember. But please catch catch me up because uh, you have a fascinating past. You know, between <laughs> surfing and cowboy and cowboy surfer, <laughs> surfer cowboy. I'm not yeah. sure what to call you. Well, well, um, 
Yeah. You know, I, I came to, I came to teaching at the age of 31. So, and I'm super thankful of that, you know, because it wasn't straight out of college and, you know, at the age of 22 or 24 and, you know, so luckily I'd had some other life experiences. Um, you know, I, I think I was one of those kids that, that I love, I would love to serve here at Rock Tree Sky. And that is, I was, you know, always had my own ideas. I think I was deeply curious, but, you know, I, I didn't really want to do many worksheets and, and I, frankly, I didn't do them, <laughs> you know, so, so, you know, I had some teachers who got that. And, you know, they just checked to make sure my understanding was there. And I did real well in their classes. And I had some teachers who were more about uh, what was my work production, which seems a, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I think that's another thing we have to look into in, in education. Are we really trying to measure work output? Or are we trying to measure like skill development and knowledge and so forth? But another side topic. So I, you know, wasn't, wasn't the all-star high school student, you know, did some junior college, but, uh, yeah, surfing's been a huge part of my life. Moved to Santa Cruz so I could surf. Um, chose to go to college in uh, San Luis Obispo so I could continue to pursue that and be somewhere near the coast. Um, and then, uh, yeah, there there was a time when I was living in Santa Cruz that I was, you know, I always did like to read, and uh, I was reading a lot of um, kind of Western writers. I'd read an autobiography of Louis L'Amour that was really fascinating. Um, I'd read uh, um, some Thomas McGuinn, I think. Oh, and, uh, and he's got a great for, book out now called A Life in Fishing. It's, it's a memoir, really? but he uses oh, okay. his, his fishing adventures to talk about his journey. Talk about life. Okay, that's, he devoted the book to, or dedicated the book to Yvonne Chouinard. Wow, wow, cool. Years years. So, you know, stuff like that. I think I was reading some short selections, like New Writers from the Purple Sage or something like that. And, um, yeah, did you know, you know play on words, writers. Oh, sorry. What's that? I said Zane Gray was a dentist from Reseda or Encino, which seems like for somebody who is so prolific as a writer, it seems like right. an odd profession. But, uh, right, right. So, you know, I just, I had this, like, I don't know, you know, I'd always lived on the West Coast and I was, I think I was at that age in my young twenties where I was trying, you know, I think, I think, you know, somebody had passed that whole Robert Bly, Iron John thing in front of me and it didn't really sit right with my particular, um, wasn't my thing, but I still was, you know, kind of curious, you know, what, who, who am I? Like, where do I fit in this big thing? What's my archetype? And somehow I identified like, yeah, I'm, you know, I've grown up on the West coast of this continent and, you know, what is, what is this Western kind of potential Western male persona at the time. And, and I, I thought, man, I want to go see what it's like to be a cowboy. And, uh, and so I ended up getting to do that for a while just by putting it out there. Like, you know, we always do in a small town like this. Hey, do you know anybody who's got a ranch? I did that in uh, Santa Cruz. I had a, you know, a good friend who's, uh, who had been engaged to, to the daughter of a family that, that was just wonderful family out in the Northeast corner of Nevada and I thought, you know, here's a guy going from surfing and then living in, in a hippie town like Santa Cruz and, you know, reading uh, a lot. And I thought, well, this is going to be different. I'm going to have to suck it up. It's going to be weird. Turned out this family, you know, that broke the stereotype for me of, of ranching and cowboying. Uh, you know, the one son had gone to Stanford and studied literature. The other son of the two boys who are now running the ranch had studied uh, graphic arts at UCI, uh, Irvine. 
And the father had been an anthropologist, archaeologist at University of Nevada. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, and so here they, they... Nevada, that's pretty desolate. Way out there. Out, yeah, about a half hour outside of Elko on the highway and then a half hour off the highway. The yeah, Mary's well, River Ranch, beautiful a, spot. Yeah, there's some beautiful country. I'm trying uh, to remember the Ruby Mountain. Is that the... Uh, Ruby Mountains? Yeah. I, I think... A, uh, you know, beautiful Angel Lake. There's a lot of so, some lovely country up there. And, you know, so I got to live that, that experience for a while. And, uh, and then uh, as a result, went back to school. You know, I didn't go back, went back to college at the age of 27 and, um, and uh, got finished by 31. And I, I'm just really thankful, you know, if I've apologized to my parents, I've apologized numerous times uh, <laughs> that I did it that way because, you know, college sometimes, boy, it's wasted on the on some of the some of the kids in their twenties. The callow youth. You know, wow, they just you know, gosh, how do you fit in your studies with all the parties? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. What was it like going back as an older student? Did, did it, it was wonderful. Edge? It was, you know, oh my gosh, it was great. I, I had these amazing professors. Some of them I'm still friends with at, at this point in my life. Um, and, uh, yeah, it gave you an edge because I was intrinsically motivated. I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. Oh, no, I was difference. doing some, yeah, that I wanted to be doing. I wanted to be studying. I knew I wanted to go into education. I knew I wanted it to be science. And so I focused on that. And, um, you know, everybody said my first year teaching was going to be the hardest year of my life. And, um, it, it really wasn't I, because I'd spent some hard years in college, <laughs> working, going to college, having a family. And um, my first year teaching was glorious. It was wonderful. You know, it was like, you know, put me in coach, as yeah, they say. Great. Well, that's the kind of teachers we need, the ones that get a run and yeah. start. Maybe they yeah. do have and some I, life experience that, that uh, yeah. gives them some context to share with the kids that they're not going to get. Yeah. Yeah. And, and going to Cal Poly, which is that learn by doing philosophy, you know, which here it comes full circle back to what I'm doing now, you know, which is, is very much, you know, the John Dewey uh, approach to education that, that frankly got kind of pushed aside in the early 1900s, um, which is a whole nother fascinating historical story, how we ended up going with the, um, uh, with the, with the Carnegie unit. I mean, you want to look at something interesting with the Carnegie unit. So kids, their grades and getting through a class is based on how many hours you're sitting in a seat, which is partly related to the professor's job security so that they have enough kids in their class to make their pay instead of competence, instead of a, a young person, a learner showing that they've mastered a skill, even if it takes a short time, instead of you can't do that and test out, you have to sit in the class for a certain that's why they talk, talk about unit hours Ooh, it's like totally antiquated brett it's yeah. punching a clock instead of what do you know and you can't do that with kids these days these kids are watching stuff on youtube that you we don't even realize it's not oh, just so cat videos i've got ninth graders talking about heisenberg's uncertainty principle with me and i'm saying where do you know this from and they take me to this youtube professor this professor's got this brilliant youtube channel all about, you know, physics and they can talk about it a heck of a lot better than I can. And they've got all the, the digital gadgetry behind them on the screen. You know, it's like, you've got an expert there and then you could have, you can have me, I, I you know, I can do some things well, but I can't, do, can't do all of 
that. So I think I, we have to do a better job of seeing what kids already know yeah. as well. Because have you heard of the Flynn effect? What is this? The Flynn effect. It's the it's the Mm-mm. studies goes back to longitudinal studies from like the twenties through the probably today. It's still going on, but it's mm-hmm. uh, named after the sociologist discovered that. Every generation gets three IQ points smarter than the one before it. Mm. That they're that we're kind of building off each other, but also mm-hmm. context has changed so much. You talk about these YouTube videos that these kids have access to, in the intellectual yep. curiosity, they are definitely smarter than we were when when we were their yep. age. Yep. Yeah, I think, and, I think and, it's awesome. Good for them. They're going to need it. With the challenges that we've left them. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. So, um, well, just one last little story, and then I'll let you go. Now, you uh, mm-hmm. have, you know, as a, as a surfer, you've seen some things out there, and one of those things got you landed you on the front page of the paper. <laughs> yeah. You think I was going to let you get out without telling that story? <laughs> do, you, do you want me to tell the story? Yeah. Briefly? I just that's it. You're just set up for it. Let's let's hear it. <laughs> All right. All right. Um. And man, I, you know, I'm still friends with that mom today. She still reaches out to me that, that, okay, here's the story. I, I was just out, I was out surfing. Um, I was actually out giving a, a private surf lesson at C street. Uh, I hope my buddies, uh, you know, will forgive me. I, I definitely never took a large group of surfers on a lesson to C street, but I was doing a private lesson lesson with this, this guy and was out in the water. And, um, uh, I saw um, a, a young woman, you know, kind of wipe out whatever, you know, she's starting to paddle back out and then another longboarder coming along the wave. And, you know, in surfing, you really, it's like racquetball. You can really start to learn to read the trajectories, right? And very early on, as I was watching the wave and how it was shaping up and I was watching where this guy was, I thought, oh, I hope he kicks out or he's going to hit that kid. And, you know, this was a, a teenage girl. Um, and, and sure enough, uh, the, the contact's imminent, imminent. She doesn't realize it. she turns at the last minute, turns her head and his board strikes her right in the oh back of her head. God, and he's got a big, Oh yeah. Yeah. And so, so, and then that wave I'm behind them, I'm inside of them, uh, closer to the shore. That wave then washes over me, you know, I duck under and I come up and I immediately start looking around to see, okay, what happened to that girl? I see out of the corner of my eye, that guy has lost his board and he's going for it, um, going to get it. And that girl, I see her body just kind of come up to the surface, but her head is still underwater, Brett. The most unnatural thing, you know, we've all done that thing where you kind of do that dead man float in the water and you're trying to hold your breath or freak your friends out. But, but the thing that we never realize is when somebody has been knocked out, you know, I always keep my head up on the top of the water. You keep those neck muscles engaged. No, her neck muscles were out and her head was underwater. So luckily I was very near. I paddled over to her immediately, picked her up out of the water and, um, you know, carried her on her side and, and carried her in, uh, you know, it, it was a ways and that, you know, some waves came over us. I got into the shore into the shallows, like knee deep, a, a good buddy of mine came out and, you know, we kind of set her on his board and, and that didn't work out well. So he brought her the last little bit of the way in and, um, and uh, we set her down on the sand on her side, and uh, she was just you know, making little gurgling sounds. It was, it was horrific. And a woman comes up, literally walks up to a, 
had seen it. And she says, I'm from Switzerland. I'm a doctor. And so we said, well, here you go. Um, the girl, the girl threw up, which the lady assured us was great. And the dad came charging down, wanted to beat me up. And I said, I'm not that guy. I just carried her in. Uh, um, he, he came in, he eventually came in. Um, you know, we talked to him a little bit. He did feel terrible. Um, but you know, we had a little discussion about responsibility and, and so forth. Um, and so, and that was it. That's all I knew. It wasn't until later in the day, um, you know, I started to wonder like, was she okay? I, I made a call to a couple, um, hospitals, to the ER room and, uh, the nurse at one put me on hold. And next thing you know, the mom picked up the phone and he said, thank you so much. She's doing great. And, uh, that young lady is now a doctor. Oh my goodness. What, she's a doctor. Yeah. Full so circle. full circle. She's that's yeah. Cool. She's a, She's been, again, she's been on the front lines with this whole COVID thing, Brett. You know, um, I see her mom share up all the stuff that she's doing and uh, she's, you know, taking in and dealing with patients in uh, the ER uh, vis-a-vis COVID. Yeah. So, well, if she yeah. if it weren't for you, she would not be there. So that's what the mom says. And it, patients have you, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, Ripples, you just, Jim ripples there you go ripples ripples um yeah that was a nice article i think it um it got i'll tell you this it got me a lot more surf lesson business because the folks at the surf shop saw that saw you know there was that front page article i think you know ojai valley ran one they did one of the vc uh no the i don't know vc reporter someone not not reported this the star Star. And, and they saw that and they said they said hey you're that guy who gives surf lessons. Tell you what, we don't have anybody at our shop who does it. We're going to send people to you because you saved that girl's life. And so, more you know, <laughs> more, more ripple, which, you know, as a, as a teacher, you know, some ch- opportunity to make a little extra money in the summer is, um, is, is a unique one. Yeah. Always welcome. Always welcome to talk to you, Brett. Yeah, Jim, it's great catching up. I haven't uh, one of the reasons I did a podcast was for these kind of conversations, just to yeah. check in with my friends. I I thought you know I was kind of an introvert, and I, I am still, but I used to think <laughs> I'm probably forty, sixty, you know. Yeah, yeah. Now I think yeah. I'm more like fifty-one, forty-nine, maybe even a little more <laughs> extroverted. I miss people. I miss hanging out. Yeah. I do too. I miss seeing people in town. I mean, that's where we would catch up and, you know, the latest news, what's going on? How are you doing? Yeah, um, I'm hoping it's going to change in the next, you know, a few more months and I'm, I'm hoping it's going to come back around. Yeah, well, mark my words. There's going to be a cultural and creative flourishing to come out of this. Or at least that's what I keep telling myself. Yeah, no, there is there... Saying it enough. It'll actually happen. It's going to happen going to happen brett i'm i'm energized uh by the historical precedent and uh i'll do my part all right i will too all right jim i know it good catching up and uh i'll see you around the campus absolutely come up anytime or well give me a heads up first but (laughs) if if you're passing through upper ohio i'd love you to come see what's going on and good to good to catch up my friend all right jim you take care you too bye-bye Thank you for listening to this latest episode of Ojai Talk of the Town. 
for those looking for something to watch or read, I will start summing up each episode with a few recommendations. Please keep in mind that I'm no expert or researcher or commentator, but I do love pop culture. Whenever I hear someone disparage pop culture, I bristle. For me, popular culture is a living, breathing embodiment of a people in their time. Shakespeare was a pop culture figure in his day, as is Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen in ours. Plus, I learned long ago that people who do not like pop culture generally do not like people in general. It's a form of misanthropy. In any event, and in no particular order, here's a few of my recent favorites. <clears throat> One, Queen's Gambit. If you had told me that I would be so fascinated by a Netflix limited series about an orphan drug abuser who is a chess champion, I'd have been shocked. And yet here I am. A second one is Ted Lasso. For this fish out of water tale on Apple Plus is more than just a fun show. It's a reflection on optimism as a moral force disguised in sharp wit and insight. For those who prefer reading, as I love to read, I've been particularly reading Ron Chernow's Titan, The Life of John D. Rockefeller. I know it came out a while ago, and it's been on my list for a long time, but I finally got around to it, and I love it. It is a tale very well told and very American in its sweep. It also gives us a glimpse into the origins of the winner-take-all capitalism that prevails to this day. Another book that I've just started is Cast, The Origins of Our Discontent by Isabel Wilkerson. I am only getting started with this majestic Pulitzer Prize winning study, but it was one of those books that I read with great anticipation, stealing moments away in the day to read and going back over some passages several times. <clears throat> well, that's it for this episode of Ojai Talk of the Town. We'll keep an ear out for you. <laughs>